You're listening to TIP. There'll be like a fire hose, like a fire hydrant of money starting to rush in to this space. And there's not a lot of uh, places for it to go. And so you're going to see this flood without, uh, without all these areas for it to go. There's a limited number of companies that still survive to this day that even the bad companies really are going to... It's like a rising tide will lift all boats. And so I'm very bullish on commodities over the next decade. On today's episode, I bring back my friend, Joe Brown. Joe is the founder of Heresy Financial and has over 155,000 YouTube subscribers as of June 2022. Joe provides excellent financial content related to money, the economy, the Federal Reserve, inflation, current financial events, and so much more. During this conversation, Joe and I cover the current macro environment, what a strong dollar means for the global economy, why Joe believes there's potentially a commodity super cycle in the works, how gold reacts to the Fed's monetary policy, why he includes gold miners and gold royalties in his portfolio, and a whole lot more. I had Joe on the show back in January to cover the ins and outs of inflation back on episode 139 if you're interested in checking that out as well. With that, I hope you enjoy today's Q3 macro overview with Joe Brown. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today we bring back Joe Brown. Joe, thanks for joining me again. Yeah, Clay, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me again. Man, markets have been in a frenzy since we last spoke. At the time of this recording, the S&P is down roughly 20% year-to-date, NASDAQ down 28%. Hindsight's 2020, but it's no surprise to me that we've seen the market pull back with the Fed tightening financial conditions. What are your general thoughts on what you've seen this year? Maybe talk about some of the things you've seen and maybe if anything surprised you. It's very slowly developing, but one of the main things that is causing what's happening right now is the is monetary policy. It's like everything is one trade right now. You're either uh, it's either going to go uh, inversely correlated or positively correlated to what the Federal Reserve does with monetary policy. And back at the end of last year, beginning of this year, as the Federal Reserve started to signal, hey, we're going to start to get tighter. We're going to potentially have to fight inflation. We're going to stop buying assets. We're going to end QE. We're going to think about raising interest rates. Literally everybody was saying, that's not possible. They're not going to do it. Can't taper a Ponzi. They can't tighten. Everything will collapse. And everybody really underestimated the extent to which the Federal Reserve does not have to care about the stock market falling. There are some things that they do care about, which we can get into, but the stock market falling by itself, 401ks of individuals being in trouble, brokerage accounts of individuals being in trouble is not important to them in light of their dual mandate from Congress, which is full employment on one side, inflation on the other. And given the way they're currently measuring the jobs market, they're right now in full force fighting inflation mode from their point of view. So I think the resolve of the Federal Reserve to fight inflation is something that the majority of people really underestimated at the beginning of this year. Last time we spoke, we actually talked a lot about inflation. We talked about the Fed and even the effects of price controls potentially being put in place. 
with the gas and the grocery bills substantially increasing in price. And you know we're seeing personal savings rates hit historical lows on top of this tightening cycle. How in the world can this all resolve itself? If gas and grocery prices are continuing to increase and people literally just can't afford it, how will the market react if a large percent of the population is in just this almost like crisis, financial crisis of their own? It's a great question because there's a lot of pain right now. And the answer is without any intervention, we will experience a lot of pain. You get the recession, potentially depression, you get the crash, you get the demand destruction, you get the defaults, you get the deleveraging, everything comes crashing down. You get a wave of unemployment, all the bad stuff that policymakers usually want to avoid. The reality is that stuff is the cure because that is pent up in the system already. That risk, that malinvestment, that misallocation of resources has happened. If we go back to uh, end of 2019, September of 2019, when the Federal Reserve started intervening again and they uh, started uh, intervening through the repo market because the repo rate exploded, there was not enough cash in the system. At that point, that was a signal. There was a crash that needed to happen, a recession that needed to happen. And a couple months later, they got really lucky because they got an excuse to print a bunch of money in order to kind of bail out the financial system. And that we are now seeing the effects of that. We are seeing all the inflation that happens as a result of expanding the monetary supply. And uh, we are seeing now the deflation start to emerge back into the economy that was supposed to happen a long time ago that they just delayed. And so they kicked the can down the road from that crash, that recession that was supposed to happen, made it all worse, made those problems a lot worse. And now we're starting to see that unfold onto the economy again. The right response would be to do nothing and let it happen because the recession is the cure for the malinvestment. Everything will be very painful, but for a short period of time, ownership of assets get transferred to the people who are more conservative, more financially responsible. Defaults happen, deleveraging happens, bankruptcies happen. And it's very painful short term, but then we are much stronger to be able to rebuild from. My fear is that they don't allow everything to resolve itself naturally, that they step in again at a point of maximum pain and try and bail everything out again. And at that point, you then have to worry about the, the collapse of the currency because we've got so much leverage built up that you're going to have a deleveraging either way. It's either going to be a deflationary side or a deleveraging on the inflationary, hyperinflationary side. I'd like to talk more about that deleveraging piece, but I recall last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about employment and how that affects the economy. And you mm-hmm. know, the unemployment rate massively spiked in March 2020. And ever since, it's come down. And I'm surprised to see how low it actually is today. Do you think we're going to see a near-term spike in that unemployment rate? You know, I see headlines of many large corporations having layoffs. I'm curious if that's something you've kept your eye on recently. Yes, absolutely. In fact, this is one of those areas why I mentioned the way that they are measuring employment is incorrect, in my opinion, because the Federal Reserve is so backwards looking on their data that they don't see, at least at the time of this recording, they don't see yet what is happening in live time. But um, they've been saying, hey, the jobs market is really strong. And they're not saying that because unemployment is incredibly low. They're saying that because there are a lot of job openings. And so given the amount of job openings, they're saying, hey, there are way more job openings than there are people taking those jobs. Until that changes, we're going to view the jobs market as if it is as strong as it can be. Because from a monetary policy standpoint, they're saying 
no matter what we do with monetary policy, we can't make people take jobs if there are a lot of job openings. That's as much as we can do. So they're saying, okay, well, the jobs piece is strong then, but inflation is starting to get out of control. So we're going to fight that inflation. The problem is very backwards looking, like I've said many times, and they're looking at this data that is stale and old and rapidly changing. A couple months ago, we started to see hiring slowing down, and then we started to see hiring freezes, and now we've started to see layoffs start. And you start to see them in the smaller businesses first, you start to see them in tech, now we've seen them like all over crypto, like pretty much every major crypto company. You've got BlockFi, you've got Coinbase, you've got a bunch of different cryptocurrency companies and exchanges just starting layoffs. And so you start to see it roll out through the economy in different areas first. But the fact of the matter is this unemployment is going to get very acute very quickly. And uh, so at that point, then the Fed's going to have to take a look at this and say, okay, well, we were fighting inflation because we were saying the jobs market was strong strictly from job openings. They're going to realize at some point, probably too late, those job openings are gone. Now there's unemployment spiking again. Now that they have those two mandates, which one are you going to favor? Are you going to say, hey, we're going to try and fix the jobs market again at the expense of inflation? Or are we going to continue to fight inflation and bring jobs down? And the reality is they understand these are goals that are at odds with each other. In fact, many Federal Reserve officials are, have stated publicly, we have too high inflation because the jobs market is too strong. We have too much employment. We need unemployment. We need people to suffer. We need people to have less money because then they'll spend less money and that will solve inflation. Man, what a conundrum. One area mm -hmm. I'm definitely no expert in is the currency in foreign exchange markets. All over Twitter, you know, I see charts about the DXY, the JPY, all these currencies and what's happening in that market. The DXY bottomed around April 2021, around 90. And it's gone up ever since and sits at around 105 today. What sort of impact does a strong dollar have on the global economy? It has a very big impact because essentially, from the most basic way to look at this, is that uh, the dollar is the currency that is used for international trade. And when the dollar goes up, you have to ask, okay, how are you measuring that? Because if you're keeping dollars in your bank account right now as savings, you're looking at groceries and gas and rent and everything getting more expensive every month. So you're looking at it from a personal standpoint and saying, the dollar's not getting stronger here. The dollar's getting weaker here. It takes more dollars to just to make ends meet every single month. But when economically speaking, many people say, hey, the dollar is getting stronger, what they're looking at is the DXY, the dollar index, which is the dollar versus a basket of other currencies. And so when the dollar gets stronger compared to other currencies, really all you're saying is the dollar is more expensive. It takes all these other countries a lot more of their own money to get dollars. And the reason why that's potentially harmful is because you need dollars to do international trade because it's the international trade currency. As dollars get harder to get for a lot of these other countries, especially emerging markets, developing markets, poorer countries, it gets harder and harder and harder to get the things that they need. And that is something that could result in unexpected crashes emerging. And with how interconnected the global financial system is, especially with how highly leveraged balance sheets are in banks in Europe, something like that could spark like a domino effect where you get a bankruptcy over here, a default over there, an unexpected default on sovereign debt from a small country could bleed over onto balance sheets 
and cause an unwind of some of these relative value trades and could spark a kind of a very quick unwind of these trades that could cause a domino effect collapse of financial institutions in Europe. Yeah. So hearing that, in my mind, I say the Fed cannot let the dollar get too strong. So there's this competitive debasement of currencies. And you look at what's happening in Japan, they are implementing yield curve control, which essentially means lots of money printing to buy up the bonds that nobody else wants to buy. And that money printing occurring is going to make the dollar stronger relative to the yen. And the same sort of things can be happening in other places of the world. The US cannot let the dollar get too strong. And I don't know if you want to expand on that, how that might play out, like how strong the US can actually let the dollar get. It's always a balancing act. And usually, like when we've gotten this far, it's like they're walking on a tightrope with a deflationary death spiral on one side and a hyperinflationary collapse of the currency on the other side. That's kind of the tightrope that they're walking on right now. Specifically, though, about the situation going on in Japan. This is one that has taken some people by surprise because historically, every time we get to a situation similar to this, although not as extreme, Japan comes in and they buy up a lot of US government debt. They're the second largest holder of treasuries, and they're typically the ones buying a lot of US government debt. But the problem that they're facing right now is they're trying to implement yield curve control. Bond prices and interest rates are inversely correlated. If I owe you $101 because I borrowed $100, that's a 1% interest rate. But if you then sell that debt to somebody else for, let's say, 90 bucks, well, I still owe them $101, but they bought it for 90. So their interest rate is now 11%. So the price of debt and the interest rate on debt are negatively correlated. So when you look at something like sovereign bonds, like the 10 year government bond in Japan, the Bank of Japan wants the interest rate on that to be 0.25%. Nobody in Japan wants to own that debt. So they're selling it. Well, that's selling pressure that should put the price down and the interest rate up. But the Bank of Japan doesn't want that to happen. And so they have to buy all that debt that's getting sold in order to keep that price up, which keeps the interest rate down. As they have to buy more and more of this debt, they have to print more and more yen in order to do that. Well, if you look at the chart of the yen versus something like the US dollar, the yen is just collapsing. It's because they're printing so much in order to buy this thing that it's devaluing their currency very rapidly. And so how that bleeds over to uh, what's happening in the States, they're not a buyer of US treasuries anymore. They're dealing with their own uh, yield curve control right now. They absolutely can't afford to print even more yen to buy dollars in order to buy treasuries. That would just make their problem much worse. As of now, they might actually be selling US treasuries in order to help their own situation which is why that bleeds over into uh, interest rates in the US rising rapidly. Because number one, we lost a big buyer, Japan. And number two, they might actually be selling and they've got a lot to sell. It is all interconnected. And that's one example of how monetary policy that cannot persist forever can bleed over into, uh, into other markets in unexpected ways. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. And as those treasury rates rise, we see pressure on things like equities in the US. When you look at the equity prices since 2008, we're kind of hitting that point where the Fed turns around. They look at what happened in 2018 or in the COVID scare, March 2020. We're around that point where the S&P is down 20%, NASDAQ's down 30%. It's kind of like, okay, it's decision time for the Fed. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how much more pains to come and when they might pivot and choose the inflationary route rather than letting the economy pull back a little bit. This is probably an area where I differ. My opinion differs from a lot of people again. And I think it's very possible we have a lot more pain ahead of us. And the reason why is because every time the Federal Reserve has pivoted in the past from to a more easy monetary policy, the official inflation numbers have not been where they're at today. And that is arguably their number one thing because even over employment, if the dollar hyperinflates and collapses, the United States loses everything. All the power that the United States has globally rests on the dollar being the global reserve currency. If the Federal Reserve loses control of the value of the dollar and it goes into uh, an inflationary spiral that they can't stop, that's the end game. That's the number one thing that they are uh, concerned about right now is making sure that prices don't get out of control. And they don't want to tip over, right? They're on a tightrope. And so they don't want to tip over into that deflationary side. But right now, I think they are very concerned about this. And so you might ask, okay, well, how high can they raise rates? How much of their balance sheet can they sell before everything gets too painful, before the government defaults? And the answer is they can do a lot. Let's deal with the government defaulting. Number one, when interest rates go up today, it does absolutely nothing to the debt service cost of the United States government. 
only when they have to roll over the debt that matures, does that start to raise the cost of servicing their debt. And so it does nothing to all the debt they already own. If interest rates go to 10% today, it'll take a couple of years before the government can't pay their bills anymore. Because all that new debt that they'll have to take on to pay off the old debt will slowly accumulate in how high those interest payments are. What happens at that point, let's say we get to the point where the government is not able to bring in enough from taxes or new borrowing in order to pay off their bills because their interest costs have gotten too high. At that point, the only thing the Federal Reserve needs to do is start buying treasuries again. They can keep raising interest rates as high as they want. And as long as they monetize all the necessary debt from the government, meaning they're the ones that are lending that new debt to the government, that new debt is interest-free for the government because all of the treasuries that the Federal Reserve owns, all that interest that the government is paying to the Fed, it goes right back to the treasury. That's how the Federal Reserve is structured. After their expenses, their profits are swept back to the treasury. If tomorrow the Federal Reserve said, hey, we're going to buy the entire national debt, $31 trillion right now, we're going to buy it all. That means tomorrow the government debt interest is zero effectively. That's all the Federal Reserve has to do is they have to start QE up again, but only for treasuries in order to make sure the government doesn't default. At the same time, they can be raising interest rates and causing pain for literally everybody else, letting the defaults happen, letting the deflation happen, letting the bankruptcies happen, letting the deleveraging happen everywhere except for the US government. Now, you might be asking, okay, well, that would start to cause a collapse of the US economy to a point where all the people who are in power would be having so much pain themselves that they would make sure that something stops. And that's true. So that is the next point. You might have a bailout for large corporations. So we saw in 2020, they started buying corporate debt. You might see that again in order to make sure that a default of corporate debt doesn't trickle over into the rest of the economy, doesn't cause a massive wave of unemployment. It won't be for the small businesses, the mid-sized businesses, mom and pop, entrepreneurs, individuals, anything like that, but the large corporations just to make sure that there are at least some jobs available for some people, for most people. And to the extent that they decide to buy government debt and corporate debt, they can continue ramping up and ratcheting up the pain for everybody, causing this deflationary deleveraging to happen for everybody and maintain the ability for the government and corporations to survive. And so I think in light of that, it's very possible that the Federal Reserve keeps this going for longer than people think they will. And we have a lot of pain ahead of us. My word to the listeners would be, brace yourselves because this can go a lot longer than some people might expect, according to Mr. Joe Brown. And you know, you talk about how we might not see this quick recovery like what we all saw in March 2020. And you mentioned earlier how the trade has been, look at what the Fed's doing when they're easing, you know, be long financial assets, be long maybe risk assets and play that trade. But when they're tightening, be more defensive in your strategy. So I'm curious do you have larger cash position today, given that they tighten, and then you're just kind of waiting for them to pivot and go back to quantitative easing? Or how can cash maybe play a role in our portfolios during this tightening cycle where the prices of many assets are going down? Essentially, what you have is two choices. You've got inflation happening or deflation happening. Inflation, prices go up. Deflation, prices go down. When you have inflation, the dollar becomes worth less. So that's a situation where cash is trash. So if you look at the dollar versus goods and services recently, cash is trash. You'd much rather fill up your freezer with meat than keep your freezer full of stacks of cash, right? You're going to do much better on a real return basis doing that. Same thing with gasoline and rent and cars and everything, right? 
When you look at assets though, asset prices have been coming down. And so you do better to hold cash. And so those are examples of when you have prices coming down, cash is king, prices going up, cash is trash. And so to the extent that we're looking ahead and we expect deflation, cash would be the best thing to hold. When you expect inflation, cash would be the last thing to hold. And so cash has this, uh, it's not flat in terms of its return. It'll either do well or do poorly depending on what happens in the economy. Something like gold long-term doesn't really do either one of those. You tend to maintain your purchasing power on average over long periods of time, whether you get inflation or deflation, the purchasing power of gold will largely adjust for what most prices do over time. You're going to have that be more of like a savings vehicle. But yes, 100% over the last year, my approach to investing has shifted from every time there was a dip in these assets that I thought, hey, these are good long-term plays, I'd be buying the dip uh, pretty much every time. Recently, over the past couple of months, I'm letting my cash position build up a lot more than I ever used to because we're entering into this time where it's like, hey, the Federal Reserve has stuck to what they said that they were going to do. When they started getting pinned for uh, insider trading and they all started selling their stocks, and then they said, hey, we're going to start tightening, that's a big signal that, hey, things are about to start to get ugly here. To the extent that you expect that to happen in the future, cash is going to perform a lot better for you because it gives you dry powder to go back in when things turn around. And I could be wrong about the timing on this. Like It could be tomorrow that Chase says, we're bankrupt. We need a bailout, right? I don't think that's going to happen, but it could. And in that case, if they start up QE again and they lower interest rates, everything flips. And then it's like, okay, you don't want cash now. This is the reversal. This is the sign that something is happening. I think there'll be some other warning signs that things are turning around in terms of monetary policy first, like the reverse repo market, I think will be the first warning sign. But essentially, yes, if you expect deflation and cash is the place to be. Man, it's such an interesting dynamic looking at cash. I mentioned financial assets, you know, referring to like, say, just the S&P 500. During a QE time period, that's going up. And then you look at commodities, nothing's really happening with commodities. And then once the inflation comes around, oil goes through the roof, but the S&P 500 actually is not inflating. It's, it's, it's actually deflating. So it's really interesting and almost confusing for a lot of people, this inflation, deflation. It's like, okay, what are you actually referring to when you're saying these terms? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I'm glad you bring up commodities because it highlights the fact that there's always a buy, right? Regardless of what's happening everywhere, there's always something you can short. There's always something you can buy. And commodities is a great example. In fact, behind me on the chart uh, is uh, DBC. That's an ETF that tracks a basket of commodities. And it has performed absolutely stellar recently because it always comes down to supply and demand 100% of the time. And even if you have uh, demand decreasing, like because let's say people just don't have enough money for something. If the supply is moving down way faster, it's going to counteract the demand and prices are going to go up. And so it always comes down to a dynamic between supply and demand. And that's what we're probably going to be seeing for a very long time with commodities due to the last decade plus of underinvestment in the space. Now that you mentioned commodities, in your videos, you've mentioned that we could be potentially entering what you called a super cycle for commodities. Walk us through your thought process on this one. I'm not going to take credit for the title there. Uh, there are lots of people saying, uh, saying super cycle right now for commodities. And 
really it comes back to the, the supply and the demand thing. When you go back a couple of decades, you start to see prices increasing in commodities. You fast forward, once prices start increasing in the commodities, eventually it gets to the point where that space starts attracting a lot of investment, a lot of capital, uh, because investors, they're always seeking the highest return possible. And so once it looks like, okay, this is a sustainable move in commodities, we're going to start investing in the space. We're going to start mining. We're going to start refining. And it starts to attract a lot of money. At that point, then all the companies, they start to perform really well. And then you get to a point where they're performing too well and they start to waste their money and they start to attract too much capital. You start to see a bubble form and then you have a collapse. You have too much, an overinvestment in the space. You have too much production. Now you have way more than you need. And so that supply demand dynamic, again, too much supply compared to the demand, wasting of money, and then everything starts to crash. And all of the companies that were wasting their money, they go bankrupt, they go under. And so investors say, I'm done with this. I'm never investing in this space again because you can't make money in it long term. So we've got these long cycles where that happens over and over again. And the reason is not actually completely free market dynamics. This isn't just something that would happen naturally. A lot of it has to do with monetary policy if you track how these things happen with easing and tightening. And then a lot of it has to do with the regulatory environment, how different laws and different laws changing over time impact how companies can deploy capital, how expensive or cheap it is to invest in certain areas of energy or commodities. And so you've got all these other things playing into, into this cycle. But right now, we're sitting at a time where you look back at the past decade, there's been absolutely $0 invested into the space. The commodities have now started to go up in price, but nobody's invested in the space. The supply is not increasing yet. And it's still not. like Even though the past year, two years have been great for the prices of commodities, you still don't have this bubble forming in these companies to the point where any companies that exist today are extremely financially responsible. They've got no debt. They've got tons of cash on their balance sheet. And they're saying, hey, this is one of the greatest money-making opportunities in, in many people's lifetimes. And nobody wants to invest in them, even though the prices have started to get to the point where they're like, hey, we're sitting really pretty here. It's only a matter of time before a lot of money turns and looks and says, oh yeah, that's actually a cash machine. Very little risk, the supply and demand. And it's like, there'll be like a fire hose, like a fire hydrant of money starting to rush in to the space. And there's not a lot of uh, places for it to go. And so you're going to see this flood without, uh, without all these areas for it to go. There's a limited number of companies that still survive to this day that even the bad companies really are going to... It's like a rising tide will lift all boats. And so I'm very bullish on commodities over the next decade. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. 
It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, that is a theme I keep hearing that the overall space has been underinvested in. And then what's happening in Russia and Ukraine just seems to be a catalyst to make this super cycle even more intense. Back to the Fed, I'm younger and just trying to learn as much as I can about investing. And I've been pondering the fact that the Fed has been just very transparent about the moves they're going to make. Look back to June 2020, you got Powell stating that we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And lately, they've been very transparent about their rate hikes and wanting to fight inflation. And I'm curious, given that with the cash you're building up, are you just waiting for that pivot, deploy some of that capital? Or how do you think about, you're very bullish on commodities. So how are you balancing what the Fed's doing with the asset classes you're bullish on? It's not that I'm not buying. It's just that I'm buying a lot less than, than I used to be buying. And my cash is building up a lot faster. And so yes, the things that I'm buying right now are the things that are like in the commodity space, especially like gold and silver miners. There are stocks that I think that regardless of what happens with monetary policy, they're such deep discount stocks right now, such value that it doesn't matter what happens. Eventually, any capital out there that's looking for a return is going to start flooding into this space. In terms of everything else, like the S&P 500 and tech stocks and some of the more cyclical stuff, it's like, hey, yeah, that we're going to have to hold off a little bit until we see some sort of a turnaround signal from the Federal Reserve because the value is just not there. Yeah, we're down 20%. A lot of stocks in the S&P 500 are still way overvalued. And I know especially like tech stocks like in the NASDAQ, many of them, many of them are down 80%, 85%, 90% from their high just within the last year or two. And so a lot of them have lost most. But still, when you look at what are these companies actually doing, what are they producing? A lot of that value that was being priced in a year ago and two years ago was the potential for future growth. Very little revenue, very little cash flow, very little profit in order to back that up. 
We've seen kind of a shift where instead of looking for massive potential in the future, given the money printing, now everybody's looking for, hey, what's guaranteed right now? Because the easy money isn't going to keep on coming in right now and pumping up these fake stocks with fake profits and fake revenues and fake websites. We've got to look for the real stuff. And that's usually you get back to when I say real, like real physical stuff that people actually need, no matter what happens economically, the most basic needs that people need to survive. You mentioned real things that people actually need and obviously screams commodities. But I'm curious, how does gold and gold miners potentially play into this? Is the Fed pivoting potentially a catalyst for gold or what's going to cause an appreciation in gold overall? My opinion on gold, which you can go back and you can look at these dates here, gold anticipates the effects of monetary policy. And so when we looked at what gold did right when 2020 started in March of 2020, it started skyrocketing. It went straight up. And the reason was people knew eventually it would result in inflation, all the money printing, all that easy monetary policy would result in inflation. The price of gold compensated for that. It went up 40%. Now, after that, the gold started to move a little bit down and sideways. So as of right now, it's sitting in between 1800 and 1850. Really, it's moved sideways for over a year. It's been a little bit volatile, but done pretty much nothing. And that's because from that point on, the market was starting to price in the potential of deflation because the printing had stopped. The massive deficit spending had stopped. The massive credit expansion had stopped. The printing had stopped. And so the market started to adjust that movement in gold and say, oh, it's, it's kind of gone up a little bit too much here because now the Federal Reserve is signaling policy in the future that might lead to deflation. And so it's pretty much done nothing. Now, doing nothing in this environment is actually very good, right? Because compared to stocks, you'd rather be in gold because if you've been in gold this whole time, you're up and down zero. If you've been in, in S&P 500, the Russell 2000, you're down 20 to 30%, right? And especially if you've just picked stocks from those indexes, you're probably down a lot more than that because the averages are only down 20%, but many of the individual stocks are down way more than that. Now what's happening with gold is you're starting to see it start to price in the chance of the future inflationary policy. If we see a pivot from the Fed, if we see the Fed come out and say, hey, there's too many problems right now. We're going to hold off on raising interest rates for now. Man, gold's going to go up. If you see them come out and say, hey, we're going to uh, lower the interest rate on the reverse repo facility in order to send some cash out into the system from there, you're going to see gold go up. If they do anything that says we're going to stop extracting money out of the economy and start pushing money back into the economy, Gold will immediately respond upwards because it's pricing in the future impact of that monetary policy. In that case, would be inflation. We're probably not going to see any major movement in gold until we see a signal that the Federal Reserve is reversing its current policy. In addition to commodities and gold, you also have you know, either gold miners or gold royalties actually as a part of your portfolio. How do you view these and why they're also a piece of your investment strategy? I think gold miners and that space is like the cream of the crop in commodities right now because we talk about underinvestment in the space. We talk about the value that's there. A lot of these companies, they've got proven ounces in the ground that are well below what they should be. 
again, many of them debt-free, many of them full of cash. And it's just a matter of waiting. And many of these companies, especially the ones that are producing, they're profitable if gold comes down to 1500 1300 some of them even coming down to 1100 And that's even with the inflation and the energy costs going up, because a lot of these companies, they don't have to get generators out there to uh, run the drills. They're not relying on these volatile energy prices. Many of them are hooked up to the grid. And uh, we've got a lot of long shot opportunities out there where it's like, hey, they're extremely undervalued. And as long as they can just survive, they're going to be worth many times what they're worth today. So those are kind of like lottery ticket long shot ones that uh, um, the value is there, but it's just a matter of capital and enough wealth realize it before uh, they can't survive any longer. There are other companies that are a lot more safe, like uh, royalties. I love royalties right now because they're inflation proof. And a lot of people don't understand the, the business model of royalties, which is basically they get a cut of everything that a mine produces. And so you think, okay, well, that's great. But if the gold price doesn't go up or if uh, inflation takes off, then that royalty company is not getting as much of a cut anymore. And it's like, no, most of these royalties are set up in a way where they make money off the revenue, not the profit. And so if a mine produces you know, $100, then the royalty company will get, let's say, $5 of that or $10 of that, regardless of what the profit margin is for that mine. When you look at these uh, uh, royalty companies, anytime uh, the price of gold moves up, Number one, the mines, they start to sell for more. So the revenue goes up, even if the profit doesn't go up. So the revenue goes up, that's good for royalties. The other thing is a lot of these mining companies, they say, okay, right now at the current price of gold, we can get all the gold that's right here. Because there's of all of the stuff we pull out of the ground, all the rocks and all the other minerals and ore, we can get you know 5% of that as gold. Because of the cost of taking all the other stuff out, the amount of gold that's left over, we can get this, we can get the gold from right here. They know right over here. There's still gold. It's just, let's say, only 1% gold. They're saying that's not profitable right now. But if the price of gold goes up to $1,900, now not only did their revenue increase because the price of gold is higher, but now they've got a lot more gold that they can pull out of the ground because suddenly it's profitable to get to drill and mine where there was a smaller concentration of that gold in the ground. And so royalty companies, in my opinion, are some of the best positioned companies to take advantage of this. Because again, in an inflationary environment where you have the cost of energy and the cost of production and the cost of some of these things going up very quickly, if you own a miner that's producing, maybe that uh, counteracts their profits. You want exposure to the revenue, which many of these royalty companies have exposure to just the revenue. Are they set up in this way because they just own the rights to the deposits and the land and where the gold is located and they're just kind of contracting out the miners actually going out and getting it for them? Is that the reason why these royalties even exist? Yes. And uh, some of them have existed for a long time. And so they go out and they get rights. They uh, are able to purchase them from companies that have not managed their resources well. And then some of them are set up initially to say, hey, you know, we'll, uh, we'll invest will structure it this way so that you get the capital that you need. So they'll give the company you know, a chunk of change so that the company can go in and do what they need to do. And a lot of this has happened within 10 years ago even. So a lot of these things are not happening today. But a lot of these companies have made these deals where they give up a portion of what they're making because they got the amount of cash that they needed in order to survive. There are a variety of reasons and ways that these royalty companies will go out and get these deals. 
but they're available and they're everywhere. And they kind of hold their secrets a little bit to their chest on how they get these deals because they don't want other royalty companies to be able to do the same thing. But in any case, they're uh, they're doing it. Again, it's a matter of time before everybody realizes, hey, there's a lot of cash coming out of this space and I want a chunk of it myself. You know, one headline I saw this week was Uganda discovering some massive gold reserves. Is that something you know anything about? There's like zero detail on it right now. It was announced by the president and it was just, there was nothing to back it up. He basically just said, hey, we've got, I think, 31 million uh, ounces of gold and we're going to take a mandatory, I think, 15% ownership stake in any company that comes in and mines. And so we're going to produce this many hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue from this. And there is no, like, I haven't seen anything that I guess proves that. I mean, it's such, that's such a large, it could actually like double the total supply of gold if it's true. And so it's such a large find with no evidence so far to back it up that I'm very skeptical of it, but we'll wait and see if it's true. That's big and could be negative for the price of gold. Yeah. One of my go-to things is just, okay, let's look at the market price. Cause like the market is the collective knowledge of the whole world. And if the market's not even moving on like news like this, it's probably not true, but really who knows? There's probably a big find and there's probably a large margin of error. And the president just wanted some good news for himself. And so uh, he said, we're going to take the highest estimate possible and just say, that's what's, that's what's happening. And you're right. The market has not responded at all to it. And I've seen no major respectable opinions on it validating that that's uh, probably true. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a pleasure having you on. I always learn so much. Before we close out the episode, could you let the audience know where they can get connected with you? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And uh, I'm mostly on Twitter and YouTube. Heresy Financial, both of those places on uh, YouTube and Twitter. On YouTube, I post every day. Uh, Twitter, I'm tweeting pretty much every day as well. And so uh, you can find me there. I've really been enjoying your content. Super impressed with how much you're able to put out on YouTube. I've been really liking it. So keep up the good work. Thank you, Clay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.